In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who knows this story wants to be the Samaritan. If someone has heard anything from the Bible, he's probably heard of the Good Samaritan. Humanitarian efforts, hospitals, and organizations are named after this man. It is universally agreed this Samaritan is the epitome of love. It turns out that being a Samaritan isn't all that great. Today we hear the word Samaritan and we think of this merciful fellow that we heard about. But not so for the first hearers of this parable. It would have been entirely unnatural for them to hear the word Samaritan next to the word good. For to the Jews, the Samaritans were a despised people. When the northern kingdom of Israel was dragged off into Assyria, some Israelites were left behind, and their Assyrian captors brought in other foreign nations. Over time, they intermarried and began to mix their faith in the true God with the pagan practices of these other nations. They developed their own unique version of the Torah. So they were despised by the Jews for their intermarriage and their mixing of their worship. So when Jesus' audience first heard this parable, they would have been shocked. No one expected the Samaritan to be the hero. Yes, being the Samaritan means being the hero. But this comes about at great personal cost. It means that when you see the one in need, you do not look away. That you see his injury and his hurt in its fullness. It means that you will be inconvenienced. That you must stop along your way as you're going to conduct other business and take care of this man instead. It means that you must go to the one in need and get your hands dirty in order to help. It means putting yourself in danger. For all the Samaritan knew, the robbers were waiting around the corner for whomever stopped to help that injured man. Or perhaps that man lying on the side of the road might have been a thief himself, ready to pounce on whoever came to show him mercy. Being the Samaritan means paying the expense, using costly resources to bandage up the injured man, paying the innkeeper to take care of him, and writing a blank check for the whole cost. Maybe this is why we admire the Samaritan so much. We're amazed by his generosity, and we acknowledge that he shows a kind of mercy that any one of us could only dream of doing. It's an act of heroism that leaves all of us in awe. Now, we are glad that the Samaritan is there, that someone would stop and help And we're also grateful, I think, that it didn't have to be any of us. Maybe we'll 
throw money at the situation whenever we feel guilty, but for the most part, we prefer it when those who are in trouble are out of sight and out of mind. There will always be someone else in need, but we all get to keep just living our lives as if that man on the side of the road isn't there. We're glad that the needy one gets helped, but none of us want to be the one to do the helping. Now we're also kind of annoyed with the Samaritan. Why does he have to be so good? Why does he have to set the bar for goodness so high? I mean, Jesus, in telling the story, doesn't just say, he saw the man by the side of the road and he helped him. But Jesus goes on and on with the details. He went to him. He treated him. He bound up his wounds. He carried him to an inn. He paid for all of his expenses. The details of this Samaritan's service preach against our own paltry love. His deeds condemn us. It's because every single one of us knows that we can't actually love like the Samaritan did. We can't go giving up our finances and reputation and safety every time there's some new person in need. It just isn't practical. That kind of love is just too costly, too inconvenient, too painful. And to top it all off, we're not even willing to try to do it. So now we hear about the lawyer. This lawyer who came to Jesus is an expert in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He knows every contour of the words and the the shape of every single commandment. He knows exactly what the law says. But now he asks a question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's odd, I think, because if he's a scholar, he already knows the answer. He already knows what the law says about how to gain eternal life. But I suspect he's he's also heard a good bit about Jesus. And so he expects, I think, that this is going to be the, the start of a good debate. That Jesus will say, well, salvation is by grace, not by works of the law. And now the debate is off and running. It's kind of like when you go to your Baptist friend and you ask him whether babies or children should be baptized. Well, you already know what the scriptures say. But you ask the question to kind of get the conversation going. But I think also the lawyer wasn't interested in the debate just for the sake of having an argument. He wants Jesus to give him a gold star. He hoped that Jesus would bless him and praise his life and hold him up as an example for all the people. So he naturally assumed that he would hear from Jesus a commendation. Good job. You've done it all. You shall have eternal life. But instead, when the man has spoken the summary of the commandments, 
Jesus says, now do it. Get after it. Get started. Jesus does not bless him or praise him. Instead, Jesus puts him to shame. The lawyer thinks that he should be praised and commended by the angels. But Jesus has no kind word for this man. Do you, O oh man, really think that you have kept this whole word of God? Have you really loved God above all things? Do you love him more than you love yourself and your own life? Are you really willing to do as you sing in that Reformation hymn, to give up goods, fame, child, and wife, and to be satisfied with God alone? Do you love him wholly, with your hands and feet, with your lips, with your ears and your mind? And if God were to choose to give you poverty and sickness, shame and disgrace, disaster and embarrassment, what then? Will you not moan and complain against God? And that, dear lawyer, is only commandment one. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. To hear Jesus tell this parable to the lawyer, it is the heavy hammer of God's law. The good Samaritan isn't just a nice story, and he's not just a good example for all of us, but rather the action of the Samaritan stands in judgment, saying over and over, go, be like me, go and do likewise. You, dear lawyer, may think you have done it all, you have not yet begun. So if we can't measure up to the impossibly high standard that we see with the Samaritan, well, maybe we're a lot more like that priest and Levite than we care to admit. My outward life is good, full of honorable conduct and service to God, but inwardly, when I see someone in need, I despise him for being an inconvenience. I'm annoyed that he can't help himself, or I'm bothered by it because it was his own fault. Whenever my neighbor needs me, there's that little voice that starts coming up with all the reasons why I can't, or I shouldn't, or I won't. I start looking for a gap to exploit, any way that I can avoid responsibility while at the same time patting myself on the back for being such a good person. Turns out that we're a lot like this lawyer. We're all going to Jesus with the desire to justify ourselves. We want God to look at our good works and to praise us. We want him to be pleased with how well we've used the law to justify ourselves. But Jesus does not permit self-justification. Justification is his job. It's not your job. And so he will not allow you to have it. Thus, Jesus preaches the law. Now, when Jesus preaches this law... 
you often look for a way out, an escape hatch to get away from his preaching. But Jesus slams every door and every loophole in your face. No matter how many times you close your eyes or cover your ears to God's word, Jesus will keep speaking to you and showing you his law. No matter how you try to nuance what he said or bend his word just a little, you will find that his law does not yield in the slightest. And when you start to listen to how Jesus preaches the law, you'll begin to realize that there is always more to be done. Another neighbor to serve, another person to help, another someone to love. The law is never done, never complete, and you never have rest. And when you think to tell even Jesus of how good you are, then you hear the booming voice of the law echo from his lips. Do like the Samaritan. Do that, and you will live. The lawyer, though, wasn't through with trying to find loopholes. He thought he had finally figured a way around Jesus' word. And so he asks, Who is my neighbor? By which he really means, Who is it that I am authorized to not love? After all, if I can shrink this category of people called neighbors, then the law can get just a little bit easier. But this question, who is my neighbor, is utterly offensive to Jesus. Because if you can exclude someone from your love and still be considered as to have kept the law, then Jesus also could exclude some from his love. He could pick and choose who he loves. He could pick and choose neighbors, those whom he likes, those whom he doesn't. By the way, this is also what is so offensive and evil about the doctrine of the limited atonement, that Jesus only died for some. It's saying that Jesus doesn't have to love everybody. So Jesus will not permit anyone to define love with an abstraction. Keeping the law isn't about some abstract category of people called neighbors. Neighbor just means the person who is near you. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We've ignored our neighbor's need and counted such ignorance as a good work. By this preaching, then, we see that we are not the Samaritan. We are not the priest or the Levite. We don't get to choose which one to be. We are that man in the ditch. You and I lie there beside the lawyer. We lie there with our father Adam and with the whole human race. You are there because of your willful sin against God, injured also by the devil and the sin of others against you. I have sinned by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. 
I deserve to be lying here on the side of the road, beaten and left for dead. The law cannot help me now. I cannot help me now. My own efforts will only cause further injury to myself and further harm to my neighbors. Any method or way I might invent to help myself only makes it worse. So I lie there dying, unable to help myself. The law, it can't help. Even though I keep, I keep trying to, to look to the law for my salvation. But all it will do is beat me down further, throw dirt in my wounds, and yet again condemn me. Thus, I am left for dead. But then, oh, joy of joys, there is one who comes to help. It is the man who shows perfect love toward God and neighbor, the man who does nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. All that he does centers on the needs of the other. Though he was permitted to remain in perfect bliss in heaven, his love for you compelled him to go to you. His compassion sent him to relieve your need. And so he commends all he has into his father's hand, his status, his name, his perfection. He looks to God, his father, for all goodness and provision and takes the form of a slave. He could call 12 legions of angels to defend him, but he chooses to go and die instead. He became, in the eyes of the world, a great fool. Yet, in his humiliation, he fulfilled the whole law. He alone kept all its commands, fulfilling them in his own human flesh. His work of salvation in the place of all men is complete. Therefore, his honor is full, and no one can take it from him. And so for him to bend down and to help you, he does not lose this status that he has. And so if Jesus has become obedient unto the point of death, even death on the cross, since he has done this for you, then is it any surprise that Jesus will come to where you lie in that ditch? Is it a, is it a surprise that he has compassion on you, the poor, wounded man? Is it a surprise that Jesus will not demand that you come to him, but rather he will go to you? Is it a surprise that he will set you on his own shoulders and carry you to safety? Is it a surprise that he takes you under his care, binds up your wounds, takes you to the inn of his church and provides for all your needs there? Is it a surprise that the one who fulfills the commandment to love would also bring that love to you? How then could you possibly begin to boast in your own goodness or to strive for your own salvation? How could you dare to be like that lawyer and stand in front of Jesus and desire to justify yourself? For you, dear saints, have been rescued from lying on the side of the road, 
pulled out of the ditch of your sins and brought here to this place, into this Christian church. Here, Jesus washes you with baptismal water, nourishes you with his word, puts into you the bread and wine which are his body and blood. He has brought you life and health and salvation. Now, I think we often miss it in our eagerness to correct the lawyer's question, but there's something right there. Right? We, know, we know that his question is wrong. Right? You can't do to inherit. But the lawyer is right that eternal life comes to you by inheritance. Being granted an inheritance depends on your father giving it to you. And it is all handed over to you by grace in the waters of holy baptism. All that Jesus has, he gives to you, especially your status as the father's son. He gives, and no one can take it away from you. You inherit eternal life with him as true sons. All that Jesus has done to fulfill the law is credited to your account. So when God looks at you, he sees his own dear beloved son. Therefore, God looks at you and blesses you and holds you up as an example for all the people. You look to God for your provision. That means you are free, free to live like a son. Jesus has brought you into his kingdom into the place of mercy and grace where the whole church is brought together to carry the lost. And so that means then that when you come into the church, it really shouldn't surprise you that there are others in this place who also need Jesus' healing. Jesus has brought you into his love. So you are to love those in need as Christ himself loves them. In in Jesus, the law is done, completed, and you have rest. So you are free to serve. You have been now brought into the love of Jesus. So his command to go and do likewise is also for you. And you hear this word with a willing and an eager heart. It means that as you go out and about your daily life, and here in the church too, you will see those who have been beaten and left for dead. Maybe they need physical healing, but they all definitely need spiritual healing. They have been attacked by the law, condemned and left to die of despair. And so now you begin to ask this question, who is my neighbor? Not because you're looking to leave people out, but you want to bring people in. You have been rescued from dying in the ditch. So you are equipped to recognize those who have that same need. So is it a surprise that you who are filled with the love of Jesus now feel his compassion toward those in need? It is, is it a surprise that you find yourself giving to your neighbor rather than making demands of him? Is it a surprise that you bring the word and blessing of Jesus wherever you go? 
Now, it's true, helping them will be inconvenient and dangerous and dirty, and you will probably do it at great personal cost. To the world, you will appear to be a great fool. And again and again, your Lord will put into your path those who need his mercy. But now you have joy in helping your neighbor in need. The joy of binding up your neighbor's wounds. The joy of bringing them to the place where Jesus will care for them and pay for all of their expenses. Now it's true that in this, most assuredly, your efforts will fall short. But still more assuredly, Christ himself still carries your infirmities and sicknesses. He still bears all your sins upon his shoulders. He still has patience for you when you fail. Again and again, he finds you by the side of the road, beaten up by your sins, beaten down by others' sins against you. Again and again, he bandages your wounds and lifts you up and carries you into his church. And then, having brought you into his love, he sends you out with his loving instruction. Go and do likewise. In the holy name of Jesus. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord.